Please open your Bibles to Mark 8, 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them will have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And he took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. They had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look to the text. This morning, Lord God, again, we come before you and we ask that you will minister to our souls this hour. We believe, Lord. We ask that you help our unbelief. Enable me by the power of your spirit to communicate your truth for your glory and for the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen. Spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is the inability to perceive what is right before your face. Now, it's probable all of us have or will experience some kind of blindness to reality because that simply is what our sin does. It darkens our vision so that we cannot see properly. In these verses, we're shown the inability to see reality as it is. To see what's right before your face. Now, in life experience, 
Some of us probably have experienced situational blindness. Perhaps you've met people who are in a relationship. I'm talking about a dating relationship. It is obvious to you and everyone else around you that the ship is never going to sail. But they are oblivious to that reality until later down the road. There are those who've been caught up in addiction who speak about certain blindness that occurs. And it's not until they're either in jail or in a hospital with IVs stuck in their veins to provide nutrients or force nutrients into their body do they finally say, I finally see. I could not see where I was. Others in life have what we call blind ambition. Where life is essentially for them about self-justification, about moving up. So that they can find some sort of legitimacy for their existence. So they walk through life and they perhaps become careerists, go-getters, high flyers, big-time achievers, and they seek promotion at all costs. So they walk through life, stepping on people's throats as their goal is to simply climb the ladder to, to achieve this type of success, and they're blind. They remain blind until, like a house of cards, it all falls apart, which it always does. And then 10, 20, or sometimes 30 years later, they finally say, what have I done? I could not see what I was doing. I was blind. This text shows us that we can be blind to what is ultimate. And that is, we can be blind to God, we can be blind to the work of God, we can be blind to the sound doctrine of God. And it illustrates for us two kinds of blindness. Permanent blindness, which we see represented in the Pharisees, and temporary blindness that we see exhibited in the life of the disciples. Now, the Pharisees demonstrate the inability to receive blatant, obvious facts, to, simply, to, to reject it. The disciples demonstrate the inability to understand what the Lord's miracles truly mean. They truly mean. With the Pharisees, we see the judgment of Jesus as we read that he leaves them. He leaves them in their blindness. And with the Pharisees, we see Jesus pressing them. Notice it's it's, it's that they do not yet understand. Which implies that they will. And he will increase their understanding. Providing, as he does, another miracle of feeding the masses. We might call this a makeup test. Pop quiz. Because they failed the exam the first time. They're still dull of heart. 
Okay, but beloved, lest we think this applies only to them, we must be very careful as we sit under the word of God week in and week out that we do not become callous to what we think we know. Witness on the right, witness on the left, amen. Testify. Now, we're working our way in this gospel, we're working our way towards the pivotal point of Mark's gospel, okay? The pivotal point of this gospel is Peter's confession of rightly identifying Jesus as the Christ. That's the pivotal point of Mark's gospel. That's what we have been en route towards. And we'll arrive there next Lord's Day. Now, it's pivotal because the disciples are very privileged to watch Jesus from very close quarters, day in, day out. And they seem to take so long to realize whom it truly is that they're following. Have we seen this? From the outset. Remember, back in chapter 4, Jesus calms a raging storm. Okay, They're scared to death. They think they're going to be consumed by the storm. They're terrified. They wake Jesus up. He speaks to the storm, and, and there's calm. And they're more terrified by that fact, by that reality. We read in chapter 4, verse 41, they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Okay, now, they were raised with the truth. They were raised with the word of God, and they knew from Scripture that it is the Creator alone who controls the wind and the sea. So this would cause you naturally to scratch your head. They're terrified. So here then Jesus moves on. He, he, he feeds a multitude of people, 5,000 men plus women and children, Matthew tells us. They see it. They actually distribute the food that is multiplied by way of his hands, the master's hands. So they, 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 they feed the people. They serve the people. They see this dramatic display of messianic power, but still yet they, they remain deaf and, and blind to the reality of who Jesus truly is. And here now, after the feeding of the 4,000 plus women and children, Matthew also tells us, in verse 18, we read, Jesus says, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not what? Do you not remember? Do you not remember? I mean, yes, they, they see the miracles, they know that something of biblical proportions is going on in and through the life of Jesus, and they witness this day in and day out. But what they do not realize is that Jesus is doing all this stuff, all these miracles, to secure salvation for them. That is, to save them from the penalty that is due for their sin. This is the very thing the disciples must realize. This is the ultimate thing that they must realize. And let me tell you this, unless, again, unless and until their hearts are changed, they cannot and they will not understand what they're witnessing. Do you see that, beloved? Something they will never come to realize on their own. 
Something that you will never come to realize on your own. That's something that you did not come to realize on your own, whether you realize it or not. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not come to trust in Jesus Christ by way of repentance and faith alone, you're deaf and you're blind. Now, that might not sound very friendly on a Sunday morning, but you do not see what those around you are so passionate about. You may come in here and scratch your head going, okay, I get this, it's interesting, but I don't understand the passion of these people. I cannot relate to it. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, the gospel is interesting, but I'll tell you, unless and until your heart is changed, the gospel will be little more than interesting to you. In order to see clearly, in order to hear correctly, it takes divine illumination. It always has, and it always will. It takes divine illumination. We're dependent, okay, that is, we are absolutely dependent on God's illumination to properly understand his word. To rightly understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, we will remain deaf and blind unless he unstops our ears and opens our eyes. We need the supernatural intervention of Almighty God to see and to hear. Okay, Now I say that because it's no coincidence that this narrative is set between the Lord's healing of a deaf man in chapter 7 and the healing of a blind man in chapter 8. Okay, now that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to journey to that point, and we're going to steal a little thunder from next week's text, okay? So stay with me. Let's look at the account. That, that's, where we will, that's where we're journeying towards this morning. But here we begin with another crowd. Notice, we'll begin with a crowd in Jesus, and then we'll proceed uh, with a brief encounter of the Pharisees, And then we end up again in the boat. Jesus and the disciples in the boat. Not a boat, the the boat. Their ministerial boat. So here now, uh, we see more revelation granted to the disciples. This this is the makeup test that I mentioned. Okay, Jesus has already fed 5,000. Here he's going to feed 4,000. This is the pop quiz. They failed the exam. Here it is. Verse 1. In those days... In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. Okay? In those days simply means without a lapse of time. Okay? That is within the same time span as the previous verses we looked at last week. In other words, they're still in the region of the Decapolis. Okay? Decapolis means ten cities. Deca, ten. Apolis, cities. They're still in this region. Um, and notice verse 4. They're in a desolate place. So they're far removed from from the cities, but they're in that region. And this would be a a predominantly Gentile region. The the east or the southeast um, area of the Galilee. And notice, here again we see our compassionate Lord. He called his disciples to him and he said to them, verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they've been with me now, okay, notice, three days in the feeding of the 5,000, which was predominantly Jewish, 
they were with him one day. Here they are, this Gentile region, they're with him three days, and having nothing to eat, he's concerned, he shows compassion. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. So here's Jesus, moved with compassion. Literally, it means to be moved in the depths of one's being. This is where you feel something in the pit of your stomach. This is where you feel it in the bowels, down deep. This, this is not superficial goof, goosebumps. This is to be moved with pity and to be moved with tenderness. And what does this reveal about our Lord, beloved? This reveals the fact that Jesus is not some goofy guru with his head, head in the clouds, Right? like these wackos of that day and this day. Here's Jesus showing true compassion. Now, he first shows compassion by way of the fact that he teaches them for three days. Ultimately, he understands their greatest need is to hear the word of God. And they follow him for three days. Now, at this point, he shows compassion for their temporary physical needs. They're going to faint. They're going to pass out if they don't eat something. So here we see his compassion in that way. Okay, here's the deja vu moment. What's the title of the message? Oh, yeah. Deja vu and the leaven of unbelief. Okay, this is the deja vu moment for these disciples. Now think about this. Having previously looked at 5,000 men plus women and children... They witnessed them be supernaturally fed, right? I mean, they distributed the food. Okay, so here now, as they look out at 4,000 men, besides women and children, you would think they would have an inadequate, comprehensive understanding of about what's to take place. You'd expect them to answer with anticipation. Something like this. Wow, Lord, what are you going to do this time? Or, Lord, what would you have us do this time? No. Instead, they ask, how? Notice. And his disciples answered in verse 4, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, we read this, and we roll our eyes. I saw some of you do that. (laughs) And we say, you've got to be kidding, right? Okay, but this is where we must pause and apply this to ourselves, because we've all been here before. Now, we've been here uh, when we experience the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we experience his rescue, when we experience his providential blessings in life, some breakthrough moment in our lives, and later on, we face the exact same dilemma with eyes wide open, and I'm talking about open in despair. We ask how. What are we going to do? Lord, what are you going to do? As if God were not faithful to do it over again. Now, the words of Matthew Henry help us here, which I came across this week, and it's this, very short, very concise. Quote, forgetting former experiences leaves us under present doubts. End of quote. So if you're here this morning and you're having trouble trusting the Lord, perhaps you've become a bit embittered and you're looking for uh, uh, signs in the sky, back up, slow down, and simply remember an occasion in the past 
that he provided for you. And also remember the fact that if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. He remains faithful, for he cannot, 2 Timothy 2, deny himself. Remember that if you're there this morning. So here now, uh, let's move on. Let's look at these dull disciples and their ever-patient master. Verse 5, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Now notice verse 8. Mark, Mark simply tells us the people ate, and they were what? They were satisfied. You know, Lord willing, hopefully, that's how you feel every Lord's Day when you leave here. Hopefully, after feeding on the bread of the word of God, you leave here satisfied. Even greater than that, the hope is that you come with an appetite for the word of God. If you don't come with an appetite, it's unlikely you'll be satisfied. Okay, notice once again, there's so much food. The disciples have to pick up these leftovers. Notice verse 8. And they took up the broken pieces of leftover, the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. There were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And verse 10. Immediately, there's Mark's favorite word again, he got into the boat with his disciples and they went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, the precise location of this Dalmanutha, it's not known. 2,000 years later, it's, you know, the location, exactly where it was, is lost. Uh, but one thing we do know, it, it, it is probably a predominantly Jewish territory back on the western side of the Galilee. How do we know that? Because the Pharisees are there. And here's a brief encounter with the Pharisees. And here now we see the blind enemies... Of God. And this, beloved, is a view. Here is a view for us of what permanent unbelief looks like. This is to be calcified, man, hardened in your unbelief. Notice verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Jesus has already been tested in the wilderness by Satan and conquered the enemy. Here's a manifestation of the enemies of God here to test him. Okay, now over the past year or so of Jesus' ministry in in the region of Galilee, he's performed numerous miracles. Amen? The Pharisees never denied the fact that he did miracles. What they did is tried to attribute his miracles to the work of Satan. Never denied them. And here, they're seeking after a sign. They're sign seekers. Basically, they're saying this. We'll accept you as who you claim to be. Okay, We'll accept you as, as the promised Messiah if, if you perform this or that. If you make the, the, the stars dance around in the heaven. Do something big and we'll believe. Now, were we to follow, in our day, worldly designs, or if we reasoned, let's say, is a political campaign advisor, naturally, how would we advise Jesus? 
Do it. You're capable of it. Do something that will blow their minds. Right? You have the ability, so do it. Then they'll have to acknowledge you as who you are. What does Jesus do? Verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why? Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, now this is, you would never want to hear this. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. You know, the fact that the ground beneath these men doesn't open up and swallow them alive is another picture of the long-suffering mercy of God. Jesus knows the posture of these Pharisees' hearts. He knows the posture of your heart this morning. You can't fool him. And he categorically denies their request for a sign. He sighs. Why? Well, Mark, or Matthew rather, tells us in chapter 19, because they are a wicked and spiritually adulterous generation who do not believe. So he says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given. Beloved, that is a formula that carries the force of a solemn oath. God forbid I ever give you a sign. That's what he's saying. God forbid. Look, and listen carefully if you're a sign seeker. Signs without transformation, heart transformation, will only lead to greater skepticism. Word. Signs without heart transformation will only lead to greater skepticism. You'll just be looking for the next sign, man. That's it. On another occasion, Jesus talked about sign seekers. Look at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see that? You see, the audacity of asking Jesus for a sign is reflected by the fact that he's been providing signs all along the way, beloved. All along the way, he's been showing signs of who he is and where he's come from. Now, the greater insult is that Jesus himself is the sign. These guys are supposed to know the Old Testament. They should have seen like that, that he is the Christ. Light came into the world. The light, they did not comprehend it, John tells us in John chapter 1. They run from the light. No matter how brightly the light shines, unrepentant sinners, beloved, and I said unrepentant sinners, love the darkness. They love it. 
They run for its cover, and like cockroaches, when you lift up a rock, scatter to get back under the rock. Yeah. I look for bugs with my grandson. We see it all the time. It's a pattern. They run for darkness. People dive deeper into the darkness to avoid the light, and occasionally they stick their head out, and they say, show me a sign. Right? When they're in trouble. Show me a sign. Those who demand signs will not believe because if the sign comes, if it comes, they will not accept it for what it is. It's now a coincidence. Their posture of heart will continue to require more signs, demand bigger signs. Lord, if you can do that, then you could surely do this. That's how we reason. Left to ourselves, that's how you will continue to reason. And you sink deeper into this perverse pit of expectation. Okay, that, friends, is where the Pharisees are. They're there. You know, understanding that leads to faith and trust in Jesus Christ is most difficult for moralists. It's most difficult for very religious people because they don't see their sin as sin, but they do see their religion or their moralism as their ticket to heaven. And they don't realize that all of their righteous deeds and morality is nothing but filthy rags in the sight of a holy, almighty God. They're blind. Notice, terrifying words, verse 13. And he left them. Got into the boat again and went to the other side. So not only did he leave them physically on the shore of Galilee, he abandoned them in the sense of Romans 1. He turned them over to their darkness. He lifted the hand of restraint. He left them there in judicial abandonment. That's a dangerous place to be, man. For God to leave you alone. He left them. So in a symbolic gesture, the Lord leaves. Okay, And when the Lord leaves, guess what? The light is gone. He's the light. He is the sign. Now, moving on. In order to prevent the disciples from this kind of heart posture, from this kind of heresy sinking into them. Verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Okay, that's simply a statement of fact. Okay? And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, beloved, leaven, in case you do not know, is a biblical illustration of permeation. It's a biblical illustration of influence. Yeast is what it is. Okay? Yeast. Yeast makes dough rise by bacterial corruption. That's how your dough rises, by bacterial corruption. Yeast. That's the illustration. So here now you have an intense double warning. This is a present imperative. Always beware. Keep on being aware. 
against their influence. Against the influence of unbelief. Now remember, he says the, 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 the uh, leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And, and, and now remember, beloved, the Pharisees and Herod were not friends. Their only point of unity was opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees, they were marked by hypocrisy. Herod, he was marked by hostility. The Pharisees, it was on the grounds of religion. Herod, it was on the grounds of politics. So the leaven of warning is a posture of resilience. It's a heart position of doubt that, that demands. It's, it's, it's simply unbelief. He says, beware. Now, in Matthew's parallel account, Matthew 16, he also says to beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. So you have, see, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. What does that consist of? All the thinking of the day, all the people in positions of the day. Legalism, liberalism, and secularism. Beware, because that's what they represent. Anything changed? The Pharisees were legalists, the Sadducees, the liberals, the Herodians, secularists. Now, this warning to beware is foundational, especially for new believers. Foundational. Because new believers are the most susceptible to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They're the most susceptible. It only takes a small amount of leaven to cause new dough to begin to rise. Just a little bit. Just a smidgen. Can we say smidgen? Kids? Smidgen. Just a little bit. Beware, he says, of the ever-present bacteria of legalism, liberalism, and secularism. You know the yeast of false teaching? It's all false teaching, right? It's what it consists of. It's all false teaching. And, and the yeast of false teaching appeals, you see, to all of our vain ideas about ourselves. It appeals to all the wrong ideas about God. It appeals to all the crooked ideas about life in this world. It grows. It permeates. It increases. It strengthens all those wrong things. The leaven of false doctrine. And Jesus is telling them, you cannot play fast and loose with false doctrine. He's telling them, basically, do not monkey around with their philosophies. The Lord's warning, beloved, is this. Leaven doesn't just sit there. False teaching doesn't just sit idle. So he says, be very careful. Do we see this? We see this? Okay, so we, we have a view of permanent unbelief, and, and now we'll move on to, to this view of temporary unbelief. A view of permanent unbelief, and here a view of temporary unbelief. And verse 16, and they began discussing with another the fact that they did not have any bread. Okay, Jesus, aware of this, says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not what? Remember. Now, this, this verbiage, having eyes do you not see and ears that you do not hear, that's language taken from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21. So here, Jesus, he's used it before in Mark chapter 4. And in that sense, he's talking about those who are what? Outside the covenant. Outsiders. So on this occasion, he seems to be saying, look, guys, it's as though... You were unbelievers. But notice, he's very gentle with them. Notice. He says, do you not yet understand? I alluded to this a little earlier, which implies that he expects they'll move towards that position in time. Why? Because he's leading them. He's leading them. He reveals more of himself to them. Notice his lesson, verse 19. Fellas, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up, guys? They said 12. Okay, in the seven for the 4,000. Fellas, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. He said to them, do you not yet understand? Okay, now let's think about the number seven. Biblically, it's a number of completeness. It's a number of perfection. It's a sign of perfection. Not mere adequacy, but superabundance, okay? Now, when he fed the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over, representing, I would say, the 12 tribes of Israel, because that crowd was predominantly Jewish. This crowd at seven baskets, predominantly Gentile, the whole Messiah would come to feed which nations? All nations. He's the bread come down from heaven. This is what he wants them to see. This is what they're supposed to see. He's the bread. The one who provides bread is the bread come down from heaven. He is manna. Jesus said that of himself in John 6, amen? He is manna come down from heaven. Unless you feed on me, you'll die in your sins. So Jesus said, look, I fed 15,000 people at, le- at least, okay, including men, women, and ch- men, women, and children, at least, and you guys are worried about who forgot to go to the grocery store, right? You, you're, you, you guys are worried about who forgot to go to the bakery. Do you not see? Do you not remember? Are you getting anything out of this? Do you not yet understand? Okay, so let's stop. And let me ask the question, what's the point of the passage? What's the point of this section of Scripture? And it's quite simply this. It's very simple. We're going to see this. You're going to have to hold on with me for another half hour. It always takes the divine intervention of God for any man or woman to get the point. That's the point of the passage. It takes God's divine intervention... For any man or woman to see clearly and to hear correctly. Now, as I said earlier, this account is sandwiched between two key miracles of our Lord that lead us to the pivotal point of Mark's gospel. 
right? When, Jesus, when, when Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, which we'll look at next time. Okay, but now remember, Jesus already healed a deaf man back in chapter 7, verses 31 to 36. Remember that? He put spit, he, he touched his ears, and then he put spit on the man's tongue. He was deaf, he was mute. He's communicating in sign language to this deaf, mute man what he's about to do because he couldn't speak it to him because he was deaf. And then in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, we see Jesus heal a blind man. So why these miracles? Well, it's quite simple. Like the deaf, mute man, they cannot and will not hear without Jesus unstopping in their ears. Like the blind man in chapter 8, they will never see unless Jesus opens their eyes. He's the miracle worker. So, through these miracles, we're given a very graphic, dramatic picture of what is required for any one of us, including these disciples who witnessed, don't forget, miracle after miracle. His divine intervention is required for any of us to understand and see these matters through the eyes of what? Opening a service. Faith. The eyes of faith. The Pharisees saw the same miracles. They didn't have faith. The disciples here, they do not yet have faith. They're a work in, pro- they're, they're a work in progress. Amen? They still not truly, the, the disciples still don't, do not truly understand their master's ministry because spiritual understanding is still being granted. This is what we're seeing unfold. God, beloved, must give them faith. God must give you faith so that you can see and perceive, so you can hear and understand. Look at Ephesians 2.8. We look over this verse so many times, do we ever read it carefully? That's the question. Look at it. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this what? This faith is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Only through the eyes of faith do we grasp the fact of who Jesus is. Jesus didn't do all this stuff to wow us, beloved. He didn't do all these miracles to to wow and amaze us. He did them to show us that he came to save us from the penalty of our sins. That's why. That's what this is all about. This is the road to Calvary. The gospel is the road to Calvary. The shadow's looming, man. It's looming. And all these miracles are leading us down that road, and therefore, the pivotal point of the gospel is the confession of Peter that we'll see next week. You know, friends, this is why you can read the Bible and see nothing. This is why you can hear the gospel preached and hear nothing. Without divine intervention, you'll never understand. This was driven home for me two weeks ago. I spoke with a friend of mine on the phone. And this friend I've known since... Uh, freshman year, high school. So she lives in Florida. She calls me every couple years. I'm speaking with her. And I give her the gospel again. Here's her response. Johnny, that, that is so interesting. Two, that is terrible. That, that is so narrow, right? The road is so narrow. So it's interesting to that's terrible, to that's narrow, 
in response to me giving her the gospel all within 60 seconds, and two years ago when I spoke to her, guess what she said? The same thing. The same thing. You see, friends, for her, for her to see and for her to hear with clarity is going to take divine illumination. That's why I don't pray to her. I pray for her. I don't pray to her, please open your eyes. I say, Lord, please open her eyes. Right? Because she's blind. Because she's deaf. You see, this is the great liberation of preaching and teaching the Bible. I have no power to cause any single one of you to believe. Zero. I have no power in and of myself to sanctify you, let alone sanctify myself. You're totally dependent upon the Spirit of Almighty God. Do you you hear that? Do Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Thus Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see. It's not that he will not, he cannot see. Paul, any man or woman without the Spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? They're foolishness. Far too many ministries of our day refuse to accept that truth. They refuse to accept it. And preaching and teaching, it becomes a frustration because you're waiting on the timing of the Lord. So you get frustrated waiting on the timing of the Lord, and as a result, what do you do? You invent all kinds of tactics to sway and move people emotionally. No single man is more responsible for the distortion of Christian truth in our age than the man Charles G. Finney. He was a 19th century evangelist, 19th century heretic, whose leaven leaven still infects evangelicalism to this day. I hear many evangelicals refer to Finney as a hero. Finney denied original sin. You can go read his systematic theology if you want. He denied original sin, and he held to the view that Jesus Christ saves by way of example to be imitated, not by substitutionary atonement. Denying, as he did, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and the doctrine of the new birth, which we just read Jesus teach Nicodemus, that without it, you'll never see. On regeneration, Finney wrote this, quote, The belief that the new birth depends necessarily on divine activity is pernicious. No doctrine, he says, is more dangerous than this to the prosperity of the church, and nothing more absurd. End of quote. Finney's evangelism approach, he coined as new measures. New measures. And those new measures of ministry included what was referred to as the anxious bench, a prelude to the modern-day altar call, where emotional tactics were exercised that led to fainting and weeping and other excitements as Finney and his followers referred to them. Excitements. 
One of his most popular sermons was titled, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. Quite a difference from Edward's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. (laughs) You see, now follow me on this. I'm doing this for a reason. Finney was an ardent follower of the 5th century heretic, heretic Pelagius. Okay? You see the leaven 13 centuries later? You see this? Pelagius was condemned by more church councils than anybody in church history. Did you know that? So the leaven of Pelagius shows up in the rise of Finney. And the leaven of Finney still rises in evangelicalism to this very day. Leaven. Until the eyes of understanding are open, until ears are unstopped, you remain deaf and you remain blind. And we'll see next time an illustration of just exactly what Jesus' disciples needed. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to borrow a little thunder from next week's text. Look at Mark 8. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. When he had spit in his eyes, laid his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men. They look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes. What? What? Again, and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw what? Everything clearly. Notice, like the two miraculous feedings. Jesus touches the man twice. I mean, let's think about it. Was this man's condition more of a challenge to Jesus to heal that he had to touch him twice? Huh? Of course not. Absolutely not. Is this some difficult case? He's like, wow, I touched you once. Let me try to touch you over here. No. This miracle was yet another sign, not to the man, but to the disciples. This man man couldn't see anything. He was likely a Gentile. He didn't know what Jesus has done previously. He heard about it. Two touchings that follow two feedings, of which the disciples were dull of heart. So the restoration of the man's physical sight parallels the way in which the disciples are gradually coming to see and understand who Christ is and what he's done. Their vision is still blurred. Friends, you can be a master teacher. You can be a genius theologian, a gifted, vibrant communicator, and yet without divine illumination, nothing happens. Nothing beyond surface sentiments and mere emotion. Nothing. How does a person move from this church stuff and gospel such is foolishness? How do you move from that to I see, I understand, and I believe as many of you have experienced? How? Because you're brilliant? It's not a result of Finneyism or anyone else's new measures for evangelism, is it? No. 
It's only by divine intervention. Hence, hence, Jesus' response to Peter's confession. Matthew 16. Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. What's that? Divine illumination. Now that Peter will go on to write this. Look at it. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. According to his great what? Mercy, he has what? Given us a choice? No, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, that is God's truth in this book is able, because it's sharper than any two-edged sword, to, to penetrate our hearts, to penetrate our minds, to penetrate our lives, revealing the wonder of who he is, causing us to receive him and embrace him by faith, not by more signs. In 2 Timothy 2.25, what do we read? To those who oppose the gospel. The hope is that God may perhaps grant them what? Repentance. That God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Otherwise, you're left blind, deaf, dumb, and dull. How thankful are you for your salvation? Spurgeon said this, Christ is not only mighty to save those who repent, he's also able to make men repent. He will carry those to heaven who believe, but he's moreover mighty to give give men new hearts and to work faith in them. He's mighty to make the man who hates holiness love it and to constrain the despiser of his name to bend the knee before him. He goes on to say this. Beloved, are you praying for some beloved one? Oh, do not give up praying, for Christ is mighty to save. You're powerless to reclaim the rebel. But your Lord, he's almighty. End of quote. We can stop right there, but we won't. Look at Ultimately, and I am wrapping up, ultimately... The disciples will only truly understand and truly believe in Jesus from the vantage point of the cross and resurrection. They'll still doubt, but who's holding them by his hand? Jesus. They're not holding themselves. They'll follow him to Jerusalem. They'll follow him to the cross. What will they do when he gets to the cross? Before he gets to the cross, scatter. They'll scatter like sheep. They'll witness his bodily resurrection, and then they will realize the depth of depravity of their own soul. That's when they'll understand understand their depravity. Only at the cross will they begin to understand the extent of offense to God, and that it required the slaughter of the innocent Son of God in their place. Then they truly understand. Jesus raised from the dead. What did the Pharisees do? They paid off Roman guards to say that his body was stolen. They didn't believe. They were calcified, left to themselves. 
It's only when we see the risen Savior, as they did, and we see it by the eyes of faith, that we begin to understand the sheer magnitude of the victory that was secured for them and secured for us by faith. So by grace now, by grace, as we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, we've seen these things explained to us. We've come to know what these signs mean to us or what they should mean to us. And more than that, we've come to know who the sign is. Amen? He is the sign. Jesus is the sign. So now we're prepared for Jesus' question in verse 27 next week. Who do men say that I am? Followed by, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? Now, if you think, if you're here this morning, perhaps you're here and you think that it takes spiritual sight that involves some type of mystical experience, you need to know for certain that it does not. It doesn't take some mystical experience. It involves eyes of faith to believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So, if you know yourself to be a sinner, and you believe, you believe that what Jesus was doing by way of these signs, miracles, and wonders, was to secure your place and forgive you of your sins, and in response to that truth, you live a life of gratitude, then you get it. You've been given eyes to see. You've been given ears to hear. You don't need some mystical experience. You realize you're a sinner. You realize you're doomed for hell, that you'll pay for your own sins. That means eternal hell. But you believe that Jesus was your substitute and in your place condemned he stood. And you put your faith and trust in him. And in response, you've repented and now live by faith in delighting in him and who he is and what he's done. You get it. Pretty simple, isn't it? It's so simple that it's incredibly hard for anyone steeped in self-righteousness. For anyone think they have their ticket punched to heaven because they're a good person. You have spiritual understanding. It's been granted to you. It's been given to you. Now, if you're here and you think this is all very interesting, but, okay, like my friend on the phone, you don't get it. If you're here and you think this is all bunk, you definitely don't get it. Unless God grants you understanding, you never will get it. Everybody's in some place. If you think, I just need to be shown one more sign of God's mighty power, just one more, then I'll believe. Look, you don't get it. And it's likely, dangerously probable, that you never will get it. They never got it. Most of them. Some of the Pharisees did believe in the end. Most of them did not. So, God likely will never answer that prayer, give me one more sign. But let me tell you this, there's one prayer that he's always faithful to answer, and it's this. It's not give me another miraculous sign. It's, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Guaranteed he'll answer that prayer. Word. Now's the time to pray that prayer if you've never prayed that prayer. Now. 
and receive the same things that the disciples did. What did they receive? Bread come down from heaven. The one that they didn't see was bread from heaven, providing bread for all these people on two different occasions. And he finally opens their eyes. They realize and understand he's bread come down from heaven. They understand and realize he is the light who's come into the world. What did Jesus say of himself? I am the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, feeds on him by faith, he will live for how long? Forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You hear that? You receive that? That means you understand that. He alone is the light. Whoever follows him will no longer walk in darkness. For Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You follow him by faith, but they will have the light of life. Amen? So receive this heavenly bread. Receive his illuminating light with joy and understanding because you, my friends, if you believe he is who he is, you've been given eyes to see and you have ears that have been unstopped. Rejoice. And if you're not rejoicing, the command is to repent and believe it, and you too shall be saved.